I went out to dinner, relaxed and sat back, but glanced at my phone and saw a bombing attack. I plopped on my couch, I was weary and tired, but glanced at my phone and saw Tillerson fired. I went for a walk, it was balmy and sunny, but glanced at my phone and saw Stormy got money. I went to a bar to hang out and unwind, but glanced at my phone and saw Ryan resigned. My team was ahead and I got so excited, but glanced at my phone and saw Russians indicted. I practiced my tennis, a sport I am slow in, but glanced at my phone and saw a big raid on Cohen. I ordered my latte with milk, extra foamy, but glanced at my phone and saw a new book by Comey. I was reading Walt Whitman, though poems often bore me, but glanced at my phone and saw more news on Stormy. I threw out my smartphone and bought an old flip top. My anxiety's low and my outlook is tip top. <laughs>
Well, good morning. Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. And if there are any tango dancers among us, please feel free to take advantage of the aisles in the back of the room. We would love to have you add your movement to this amazing music that we have this morning. Um, my name is Karen Schofield Leica. I am a member here at the Ethical Society, and my preferred pronouns are per and pers, which is shorthand for person. And I am so glad to see so many of you here this morning on a balmy summer's day. Um, welcome especially to those who are visiting with us for a first or a repeat time, and we hope that you got blue name tags so that we can welcome you warmly, and we are delighted to answer any questions you might have about this community and what it means to us and what it is that you are looking for that brought you here today. I would also like to encourage you, if you are a visitor, to um, fill out the gold sheet that you find in your program um, with, by sharing your email with us. We send a weekly list of upcoming activities and uh, visitors are always welcome to participate and so it's a great way of getting to know some of the things that happen within this very vibrant community. I will encourage everyone here, um, this is especially pertinent today, to silence perhaps your noise-making devices. But while you have those out, your smartphone, you may check in on social media to let folks know that you are here. They might be joining us remotely via our live stream, or they might indeed decide to come and be with us in the room on a future date. And so we welcome th those folks as well. And now I would like to call forward uh, Joe London to read our statement of purpose so that we might hear our shared voices, uh, shared values, excuse me, and each other's voices. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person we strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. If you are new to our community of children and adults, we invite you to join us as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. And as Joe lights our community candle, I invite you all to join me in the candle lighting words that are here on the screen. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. And I should say that Joe um, came up this morning as a representative of the Community Relations Committee, and they will be holding some chats afterwards, which I will say more about, but helping us to really um, standardize or solidify our commitments to each other. So thank you for that, Joe. Each week, we ring this bell in solidarity with congregations and others around the world. 
Today, we hold in our hearts Aretha Franklin and Kofi Annan with gratitude for all that they gave to the world. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. invite you now into a time of deeper meditation. <clears throat> Take a moment to settle in your seat, you know, stretch and wiggle about until you're feeling well settled, a place where your body can be at ease. Close your eyes or let your gaze gently soften. Take a big breath in and let it out. Continue to breathe deeply and evenly, feeling the rhythm of your breath. Notice any stray thoughts, but don't dwell on them. Simply let the thoughts pass and see how your breath continues to flow deeply, calmly. Notice the stages of a complete breath from the in-breath the pause that follows, then the exhale, and the pause before taking another breath. As thoughts intrude, simply allow them to pass and return your attention to your breathing. Breathe gently in, gently out. And sit for a few moments more, enjoying how relaxed you feel and experiencing your body as it slowly reawakens and your mind returns to its usual level of alertness. And breathe.
so much. This is our first time having the Trapilio Trio with us, and Karen and I were saying during our sort of rehearsal that we feel like we're sitting at a sidewalk cafe. I'm sorry I don't have Perrier for all of you to <laughs> sip on and, you know, just watch as people walk by. It's very beautiful. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Now I'm going to totally um, ruin that mood. Uh, <laughs> with um, the complete opposite in terms of um, uh, classiness, I would say. Your music's so classy, it's so elegant and beautiful. And um, so instead of that, we're gonna watch this, um, just the beginning, actually, of, um, of an SNL skit that I saw a couple of years ago. Um, just the beginning, because when I went and rewatched it, I knew I wanted to share it with you for this platform, which is um, called Put Down Your Phone. I knew I wanted to share it with you, but when I went back and rewatched it, I realized that the majority of the video would actually really not be appropriate for Sunday morning. <laughs> so um, you can go and watch the whole video at home um, and think, oh, that's so gross. Why would she have shown that? And we'll just look at the beginning. You can still think to yourself, that's, that's really on the edge, Amanda, and tell me about it later. I was a colleague to see if she thought it was appropriate for Sunday morning, and she pointed out if I have to ask, we have such a low bar in our community, you know? <laughs> Is it really? So I'm sure you'll email me later if I didn't catch it. Um. You work hard. And in this economy, you can't afford to take a break. But you're only human. At some point, you have to go. Did you know the average American wastes 15 minutes a day in the bathroom? I'm flushing my career down the toilet. Well, now you don't have to. With the Bathroom Businessman. It's a fully functional workspace where you need it most. In the bathroom stall. Well, now I can finally get some work done. You'll get a telephone, a desktop computer, filing cabinets, even a paper shredder. Thank you very much. And thank you to Jen for finding a place to cut the video off that was at least possibly appropriate. Um, I'm gonna put this back up again so that those of you who didn't like it can erase it totally from your memories and pretend it never happened. I do think the rest of the video is pretty funny uh, as well. So, um, so that really at its heart, right, is, um, is our challenge with, uh, with cell phones, with technology. I hadn't realized actually um, how much of parenting these days was, was about kind of figuring out limits on technology, figuring out what kind of limits felt appropriate on my children's use of technology and even on my own use of technology. One of the things that my kids tell me regularly, and parents you may um, experience this or if you have partners or friends, um, is put, put your phone down. Mama, mama, put your phone down. I'm talking to you. Mama, mama, why are you doing email again? Mama. At the same time, literally almost in the same breath, sometimes it's, mama, put your phone down. I need to talk to you about how I'd like you to get me a phone. <laughs> right? You know, like the, the, the kind of constant negotiation, what's the right age to be able to get a phone? My um, younger daughter, who's seven, told me recently she had heard of someone who had a phone when she was seven. Um, she's actually here. She's not going to get a phone at seven. I just want to be clear about that. 
And I know I'm always watching to see what other parents are doing. You know, I have sort of like the model parents, like, well, they waited till eighth grade. Well, these other people waited till 10th grade. I'm not sure that's possible, but could, maybe it's seventh grade. It's the beginning of middle school. And I think it's true for many of us. We, we have that simultaneous impulse to tell others and ourselves, put the phone down, put the phone down, pay attention to me, I'm right here. And at the same time, we're trying to figure out how we can get more and better access to phones, to the technology that helps us. This um, platform was actually an auction platform. It was um, purchased and the subject was chosen by the purchaser at the last um, auction here at West. The next one is coming up in October, by the way. They're really fun events. I encourage you to go and to, to donate services to them. And, um, and the person who bought the auction has been sending me, ever since he bought it, articles about phone use. Um, really, uh, that was in October. So um, I have a lot of articles <laughs> about the damage of, um, of phone use. And so I want to get some of that out of the way, some of the data, which is mm, not great. It's not great. There's a January article in the Washington Post by Tara Barham uh, Four who talked about a decrease in psychological well-being among American adolescents. This was a particular study after 2012. So they started measuring sort of before 2012 and then after, and links to screen time during the rise of smartphone technology. So what this study found, which was you know, in a major psychological um, journal, was that 10th and 12th graders uh, after so adolescent self-esteem had been rising since the early 90s, and then after 2012, which was when smartphones really became kind of ubiquitous in American society and often for teenagers, life satisfaction and happiness plunged. Um, right at the year, that was the year that smartphone ownership reached a 50% mark in the United States. It also, this article goes on to say, found that um, the study found that adolescents' psychological well-being decreased the more hours they spent on screens, including with the internet, social media, texting, gaming, and video chats. Now, of course, they're not able to show causality with a study like that. There's a correlation, right? And so, you know, the, the researchers said it's possible that um, teens that are spending more time on their screens, that's because they're not able to connect as easily with their peers. So, you know, there may be some links that way. Um, but what they found, uh, the, according to the study, was that the happiest teens were those who were above average in terms of face-to-face -face social interaction time. They had more time face-to-face -face than their peers and below average in social media use. So it's kind of a, a damning study for, uh, for phone use. CBS News had something similar um, looking at it from a slightly different angle um, about phone addiction. So I don't know if you have experienced the sort of need to look at your phone and to check it regularly. I know that I have, and there's a, a reason for that. Um, so the psychologist Larry Rosen uh, talked about how technology wreaks havoc on anxiety levels. This is quoted from CBS News. Rosen and his team at California State University have found that when people spend time away from their phones, their brains signal the adrenal gland to produce a burst of the hormone cortisol, the stress hormone. Cortisol triggers a fight or flight response to danger. Um, and while it may have made primitive human, I'll say, correct uh, Dr. Rosen there, hyper aware of his uh, their surroundings for safety, today it compels us to check our phones. 
Eventually, Dr. Rosen says, your goal is to get rid of that sense of anxiety. You know, I don't know what's happening, what's waiting for me in my email, and so you check in. I actually didn't need a study to tell me that technology and my phone in particular, and especially my email on my phone, is addictive. A couple of years ago, I um, went to the doctor because my left eye had been twitching regularly, and um, I didn't know what it was. I felt like I was sleeping enough, you know, it was, didn't seem like it was dry, so I thought I would have it checked out. And I was waiting for her um, to come. She was about 20 minutes late, so I figured I would get checked up on my email. You know, I had nothing else to do. And so I had my phone, and at that time I had my work email coming directly to my phone. And so, you know, she came in, and I'm, I'm you know, reading my email and replying to things and saying, oh, it's really efficient because I'm getting all of this work done while I'm just sitting in the doctor's office in this little funny gown. And um, she came in, and I told her the complaint was that my left eye was twitching. <laughs> she didn't really have a lot of sympathy for me and suggested that it might perhaps be related to the activity she had just seen me engaging in, <laughs> literally as she walked in the door, which was newsflash, not healthy. I know that feeling, and perhaps you have had it too, you know, you, every time you check into your email, you get sort of some information that's neutral, some information that's good, and maybe some information that's bad, you know, a, a project missed a deadline, someone needs you, there's a problem somewhere in your family. And, um, and because you don't know what it is, it triggers that sense of anxiety each time. You might get an endorphin rush when you read it, oh, the project's completed, that's great. You might get a little um, bit of stress in your life. And so it feeds that addictive tendency. Games on phones, of course, are the same way. And not only games, but all of the apps on phones are intentionally created to be addictive. They want us to play them more. And so they build them so that we get sort of the, um, the uh, addict, that addictive quality within the game. I actually had to remove Candy Crush from my phone. Um, I'm not allowed to have it anymore because it was uh, problematic. So, um, and then finally, there was another article um, that I had sent to me about um, children whose parents were on the phone. And you can imagine, again, I'm not sure we needed to do a huge research study on it, but you know, children whose parents spend the majority of their time looking at the phone during playtime or dinner feel less connected to their parents. So that was surprising. It was not surprising. Okay, so there's all this data out there, right? Um, I also heard a really interesting podcast on NPR's The Hidden Brain about deep work. And this isn't going to be surprising to you either. Deep work is the idea that there's certain kinds of work and um, creative thinking and even just sort of um, uh, clear, efficient thinking that we can do only when we are not surrounded by distractions. Cal Newport, a computer science professor at Georgetown, has written a, a book on deep work. I didn't catch all of the podcast because I was multitasking at the time. <laughs> but what my takeaway was is that many of us think that we're concentrating on something, but we'll just real quick check email or real quick check Facebook while we're concentrating on that writing task that we have, for instance. And in fact, those little tiny check-ins, which to me feel like breaks, you know, like, oh, I've written three sentences of my platform. I'll check Facebook. Okay, it's fine. Four more sentences. Distract us from the kind of deep thinking that we need to do. 
he gave a really interesting example um, of a group of doctors and residents. Um, one group communicated about their cases mainly by email, which seemed like a convenient way to do it, right? They're just back and forth about the patients, getting the information in real time. Another group chose to have all of the conversation about their cases in actual face-to-face -face conversation. They didn't email back and forth to each other about it. They saved it for the one time a week when they sat and talked about the case together. And the interesting thing was not so much the, um, the results for patients, I think the patients received good care either way, but the residents in this group, the face-to-face -face group, stayed in the program, and the majority of residents in the email group actually dropped out of the program that they were part of. So something there, again, about sort of the, the, the myth of efficiency through technology and then the experience of the kind of work we can really do best when we're face-to-face. -face. But then I think there does need to be a balance between that idea, the importance of deep work, the importance of being face-to-face, -face, the awareness of all of the challenges that the studies tell us around technology and screen time and our stress hormones and our attention, all of those pieces. And the reality that many of those technologies actually do make it possible for people to collaborate and connect with each other across distance in a way that's never been possible before. Zoom and Google Docs certainly help the West workplace to work, and I know many of you as well. So how do we balance the things that are really challenging with the things that actually are good in our lives? I was reflecting on this a little bit with a group of colleagues, and several of them shared stories about things that have been important for them. Cell phones and social media and technology in particular has been really important in the disability rights and disability access movement, making it possible for people who aren't able to easily move their bodies into a different place to connect with people all over the world to engage in social justice movements, to be part of academic conversations, and simply part of social conversations. It's helped people with rare diseases connect when you might not be able to find people in your area to talk with, right? People with similar struggles in their life, people who have a shared interest in a particular kind of, you know, arcane fiction, plus obviously pictures of kittens are a super important part um, of the whole thing. A lot of the conversation when people talk about the good that they find from their technology actually has to do with relationship and connection, precisely the thing that we say technology takes us away from, right? Uh, on the one hand, it can keep us apart. On the other hand, as my colleague Christian Schmidt put it, he wrote, I think it's an amazing transformation in communication where we've seen, thi through, we've seen through things like cell phones and social media. Away from communication to a place, right? where you used to call someone's home and whoever was in that place might pick up or if they weren't there, they wouldn't pick up an address or a home phone to a person. I can communicate to you, he said, not to the places you might be. How wonderful is that? So that's sort of social media, right, or Skype, but it's not specifically our phones. We could do all of that on our laptops and not have that experience of pulling something out of our pocket 15 times a day to check it or to escape to it. Several summers ago, um, I went 
sort of totally off my phone for um, a few weeks. I had it, was at my parents' house, I had it on a counter, so if someone called me, I would hear it, but otherwise I didn't check it, I didn't check Facebook, I didn't text anybody. And, uh, and one of the things I really noticed was that I had been using my phone as a way to escape from challenging things in my life. Not like really big, like emotional challenging things, but like, you know, my kids were annoying or um, I didn't want to think about one particular thing. And, and on the one hand, right, you can see that that form of escape might not be that helpful. On the other hand, sometimes escape is actually not so bad. One of my colleagues talked about bringing her phone with her when she was working as a chaplain in a trauma center. She said being able to have it in her pocket so that in between trauma calls, she could pick it out and do a game of Candy Crush and have just literally a, a wall up, a little different world to enter into for those few moments before the next trauma call came on. Escape has its usefulness and its place in our lives. The Self-Driven Child is a book by William Stixford and Ned Johnson, which talks about technology, among other things. It looks at a whole variety, a whole part of parenting. And it was talking about sort of the way that technology has often been seen and for many years has been seen as really negative. Um, a physician named George Beard, the book goes on, offered up a theory as to why more and more Americans were suffering from nervousness. His main culprit was technology. New conveniences were making life go faster, like the railroad and telegraph, and making people pay more attention to small details, like the pocket watch. Dr. Beard was writing, as you might have guessed, in 1881. And it makes me think about the fact that there is this element of whatever's new concerns us. Now, it goes both ways, right? Perhaps before the pocket watch, we actually didn't worry much about a minute-long period of time. When you think about it, a minute is, is not that long a, a moment, right? Maybe we, we shouldn't worry about minutes. Maybe he was right that the pocket watch was the beginning of this sort of um, movement away from presence, from an hour being... A, a short enough period of time to think about. I read a book as a child that I can't remember the title of or the plot of, but one thing that really resonated for me that I've never forgotten is it's about a girl who lived with her grandmother. And the grandmother had pulled the minute hands off every clock in her house. She said, an hour is a short enough time to worry about. You don't need to worry any shorter than that. It stuck with me the idea of shifting totally our experience of time and how we interact with it. I think that's some of the idea behind deep work, that there are moments in our lives, ways of being that require us to set down the phone and even the pocket watch, right? that require us to enter into an hour-long chunk of time. At the same time, I think we do need to be careful not to fall prey to the everything new is bad. You might remember an image that went around Facebook a couple of years ago. It was a picture of a group of teenage girls at a museum in Europe, and they were um, sitting on the bench, there was a 
gorgeous, famous painting behind them in the background, and every single one of them had their phone out and was, you know, staring into the phone. Well, the photo went viral of these teens staring at their phones, and of course, you can imagine the response, right? Ironically, on Twitter, so just hold that, right? I don't know. You can imagine the response, this is what's wrong with the world. You know, here are these girls in front of this incredible piece of art and they're just staring at their phones. This is exactly the image that encapsulates the entirety of the decline of human civilization um, here in this one particular picture. Well, it turns out um, that the girls were engaging with an app that the art museum had created that walked you through a tour of the paintings. So they had just before that picture, that image was captured, had been looking at the painting and engaging with it, and, and then they were looking down at their phones to read about it, something that a curator had put together so that they could more fully engage in the art. Someone else managed to capture a different picture of those same group of teenage girls, this time seated and staring directly at the painting. It was a good reminder about not making assumptions, right? When we have a new piece of technology or someone's interaction with that technology in front of us. One of my colleagues talked about buying her first smartphone when her wife was deployed to Afghanistan. She hadn't ever wanted one before. She didn't think she needed that kind of constant interruption. But it was the only way that she could be assured that her wife would reach her, given the time difference, to let her know that she was okay after a rough night, that she was still safe. Now, she went on to say that she now has a particularly elevated stress response whenever her phone goes off because of that experience. But she sure is grateful that she had it available to her. So. Yes, right, it's, it's both and. There's the anxiety kind of detailed in our opening words where every time you look at your phone, you see something new in the news. Your Facebook feed tells you one new piece of bad information. And then I also think about my Facebook feed after Aretha Franklin's death was announced. As people started sharing memories and music videos, as a community of sort of collective mourning and gratitude was created in that space. It might have been created on Twitter as well, or even on an email listserv, people reaching out to each other in connection and relationship. If you're friends with me on Facebook, you know that I use Facebook rather a lot. I do love it as a medium. And there's actually a post from J.R. Blackwell that was making the rounds recently that I particularly enjoyed. It went, I like the photos of your lunch and your baby and your dog or cat or bunny or snake. I like your selfies and your crafts. I like seeing your house renovation and your garden. I like to see your book and the article you got published. I like to see the cocktail you had or the beautiful stained glass in that new church you're going to. I'm glad you've been sober for a while. I'm glad you're working out more. I enjoy seeing your face sweaty and pink after that 5K. I like it. I like you. I like your lunch. For me, that's what Facebook is, an opportunity to see more deeply into people's lives. But of course, it's not for everyone. 
I reached out to our teens as I was working on this platform, thinking that I might go directly to the expert source for their experience with phones and social media and how they manage all of that. And I heard back from several of them. The subtitle of this portion of the platform is, The Kids Are All Right. <laughs> or at least our kids are all right. As always, when I talk with our teens, I'm impressed with their maturity and thoughtfulness and the way that they engage with this. And I know it's no um, accident because we do include social media and um, cyberbullying and all of that kind of work in our OWL curriculum here in our Sunday School program. Russell Corbin talked about using cell phones. He has an iPhone now and he uses Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and, um, and Twitter. He says, I never leave the house without my phone, and I am happy to say it is a vital tool for my life. Social media aside, I use my phone all the time for music, navigation in the car, photography, social assignments, school assignments, maybe social assignments, I don't know, but he said school assignments, and even using the Tesla app and the Kia app to control the functions of my cars. I don't understand that, but it sounds impressive. Um, I do have serious concerns about long-term effects of cell phones on social interaction. And in fact, Russell is one of our teens who, in 2018, he said, I was overwhelmed with my parents' warnings of the downsides of excessive phone use, and I saw several things in the news about studies showing phones to be addictive. So one day I said, that's it, and we went to the Verizon store and got me a flip phone to use for some temporary amount of time. In essence, all that it could do was make voice calls and text. But you had to, you know, it was like, it didn't even have a QWERTY keyboard, right? Remember those? You had to press the seven button four times to get the letter S, he says. He described that to me, which was cute to think that I didn't have that phone for a long time, Russell, I did. <laughs> that was me. The benefits over the next two months, he wrote, were great, and so were the sacrifices. It was nice to be away from the repetitive, meaningless, and addictive aspects of social media. I actually called some of my friends on the phone rather than texting and I didn't feel the need to check my phone every five minutes. The main downsides were around the practical uses of phone. It was difficult to navigate, to play music, not to have a camera always available to capture my funny memories. And I missed catching up on the lives of friends who I don't see at school through social media. He spent two months with that flip phone, experimenting with the experience of not having access to his regular technology. Since my return to my iPhone, he wrote, I've made rules for myself over usage, and it is a struggle to stick to them because the chemical addiction that smartphones bring to people is real, but I'm doing okay. I'm glad I did it, but I don't think I'll be using the flip phone again anytime soon. Jason Weinfeld shared some insights as well. He wrote very much of the, from the perspective of a person born in 2001 and a teenager now. I believe cell phones can be helpful and extremely beneficial to society as a whole. He goes on to talk about some of the challenges of cell phones, and, um, but points out that there are positives to having a cell phone and being part of the infinite social media possibilities. The positives, he detailed, include quick and easy communication between ranges of two people to 20 people in one message system, easy to communicate with others who may not be able to talk to without cell phones, and family members who don't live close. I believe, he wrote, that there's something that brings organization and communication to a new level. But as a society, we need to be careful to not let them overtake normal things in life. The thoughtfulness that Jason and Russell brought to that, their ability to see easily the challenges and the positives, 
made me think about something that I think is part of the equation. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of natives versus immigrants to technology use. It's the idea that if you were born after a certain year, you're essentially a native to technology. Even though technology keeps changing, the basics of how to interact with the type of technology that we use now is sort of something you grew up with from the very beginning. If you were born before that time, you're an immigrant to technology. So you have to learn it just the way you might have to learn a different language. You certainly can and can become extremely adept at it, but it's a different kind of engagement. Folks in my age category are right in the middle. I got my first email address in high school. And so I was relatively young, but you know, still, so I'm sort of, I don't know, like a, I don't know what I would be called, an immigrant, I don't know. To me, the generational component there actually has to do with the ability to make choices easily about engagement with technology. One of the things that I see from some of the thoughtful younger folks that I know, and people sort of just under my own age, is that because technology use comes so easily to them, being able to be conscious and thoughtful about it also comes easily. When I struggle with technology, I find it more annoying. I can't figure out how to turn off the dings. I can't figure out how to make it not pop up. I don't know how to change the out of office on my phone. I have to ask Robin every two weeks, right? The ability to engage easily with technology also makes it more possible to choose how we show up with it how we use it in our own lives. It's one of the reasons that I think Russell and Jason were able to speak so thoughtfully to it because they were born with it, right? With an ability to navigate easily. As I thought about all of these sort of positives and negatives, of course it kept coming down to relationship and connection. Ultimately, does our engagement with technology take us farther apart from each other, or have the ability to bring us closer together? And the answer, of course, is yes, right? Both of those things, depending on how we use it in our own lives. There's a deeper lesson, too, that I kept coming back to, particularly as I thought about that photo of the girls with their cell phones, and about the trope that I see frequently in the media, again, ironically, often on Facebook and Twitter, <laughs> around sort of, you know, young people just being connected to their phones. Millennials don't do anything but stare at their phones. Um, they're not engaging in the world around them. The bigger piece, I think, has to do with not assuming another person's experience based on your own experience. For one person, a phone might be deeply distracting and disconnecting, bugging them in the middle of important deep work or thinking, just a kind of albatross in their purse or in their pocket, right? For them, it only represents disconnection from other people. For another person, a phone could be a literal lifeline, a connection with people they're otherwise not able to see because of their own physical limitations or because of distance, a connection to groups of people that speak to a particular shared identity or experience, a way to escape and take a moment when needed and then come back in. The bigger lesson there is not to be so quick to judge, I think, but rather 
to think thoughtfully about our own cell phone use and consumption and to give other people the space to share with us how it is they're experiencing it. One of my favorite pieces on um, social media, which I am going to um, sort of edit again for appropriateness on Sunday morning, um, came uh, as a little, so look, I printed it out. It's kind of old school. <laughs> it's a photo on Facebook. Don't ever judge a mom for looking at her phone while her kids play. She's probably Googling Waldorf schools. JK, just kidding. She's on Facebook and deserves three minutes of peace. <laughs> that, in its essence, is my interaction with phones. Sometimes it's time to set them down and do the deep work or be present to the people around me. Sometimes that's where the deepest connection and relationship is possible. Sometimes I need three minutes on my Facebook feed so that I don't lose it in the middle of a challenging moment. And sometimes, sometimes that phone is a connector deeply to someone not in front of me, but able to be in relationship because of the wonders of technology. So cliff notes, the kids are all right. Don't judge. Don't bring your cell phone into the bathroom.